0: Welcome back, my friends, to the Big Book Podcast. My name is Howard, and I'm an alcoholic, sober since 1988, one day at a time. In this episode, the 19th story from the Personal Stories section of the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, published in 1939. This story, which appeared only in the first edition of the Big Book, is entitled, Smile With Me, At Me. It provides a glimpse of life in the early 20th century when World War, Prohibition, and the Great Depression affected the lives of those alcoholics who had yet to be relieved of their disease through the efforts of Bill W. and Dr. Bob, who founded Alcoholics Anonymous in mid-1935. For those who suffered, A.A. and the Big Book could not have come at a more critical time. And now, the original story Smile with me, at me. At the age of 18, I finished high school, and during my last year there, my studies were dropping away to be replaced by dancing, going out nights, and thinking of a good time, as most of the boys of my age did. I secured a job with a well-known telegraph company, which lasted about a year due to the fact I thought I was too clever for a a seven-dollar-a-week job, which did not supply me with enough money for my pleasures, such as taking girls out, etc. I was not at all satisfied with my small wages. Now, I was a very good violinist at the time, and was offered jobs with some well-known orchestras, but my parents objected to me being a professional musician, although my last year in high school was mostly spent playing for dances and giving exhibition dances at most of the fraternity affairs. Now, naturally, I was far from satisfied with my $7 a week wages, so when I came across a boy neighbor of mine on the subway one night, by the way, I read in the newspaper that this same boy died four days ago. He told me he was a host in a celebrated restaurant in Cabaret and that his salary ran $14 per week, and he made $50 a week in tips. Well, think of being paid for dancing with the carefree ladies of the afternoon and receiving all that sum, and me working for only $7 per. The following day, I went straight uptown to Broadway and never did go back to my old job. This was the beginning of a long stretch of high-flying, as I thought, only to find out when I was forty-one years old to be very low-flying. I worked in this restaurant until I was twenty-one. Then we went into the World War. I joined the Navy. My enlistment pleased the owner of my cabaret so much that he offered me a good job at the end of my federal service. The day I walked into his establishment, with my release from active duty, he said, you are my assistant manager from now on. Well, this pleased me as you can imagine, and my hat from then on would not fit. Now, all this time, my taste for liquor was constantly growing, although it was no habit, and I had no craving. In other words, if I had a date and wanted to drink with the girlfriend, I would, otherwise I would not think of it at all. In six months' time, I found I was too good for this job, and a competitive restauranteur or a chain of the best well-known nightclubs offered me a better position, which I accepted. This nightlife was starting to tell and show its marks, and together with the slump in that sort of business at the time, I decided to apply for a job with a well-known ballet master who drilled many choruses for Broadway shows. I was this man's assistant, and I really had to work very hard for the little money I received, sometimes 12 hours or more a day. But I got the experience and honor, which was just what I was looking for. This was one time when my work interfered with my drinking. This job came to an end one evening when I was drinking quite heavily. A certain prominent actress inquired of Professor X, my boss, if I would be interested to sign an 80-week contract for a vaudeville tour. It seemed she could use me as a partner in her act. Now, a very nice woman, Miss J., who was office clerk and pianist for the boss, overheard the conversation and told both Mr. X and Miss Z that I would not be interested. On hearing this, I went out and drank enough to cause plenty of trouble, slapping Miss J. and doing an all-round drunk act in the studio. This was the end of my high-flying among the white lights. I was only 24 years old, and I came home to settle down. In fact, I had to. I was broke both financially and in spirit. Being a radio operator in the Navy, I became interested in amateur radio. I got a federal license and made a transmitting radio set and would often sit up half the night trying to reach out all over the country. Broadcasting radio was just in its infancy then, So I began to make small receiving sets for my friends and neighbors. Finally, I worked up quite a business and opened a store, then two stores, with eleven people working for me. Now here's where old Barleycorn showed his hidden strength. I found that in order to have a paying business, I had to make friends. Not the kind I was used to, but ordinary, sane, hard-working people. In order to do this, I should not drink but I found that I could not stop. I will never forget the first time I realized this. Every Saturday, my wife and I would go to some tavern. I would take a bottle of wine, gin, or the like, and we would spend an evening dancing, drinking, etc. This was fourteen years ago. I was practically a pioneer in the radio business, and that must account for people putting up with me as they did. However, within three years' time, I had lost both stores— I won't say entirely due to my drinking, but at least if I had been physically and mentally fit, I could have survived and kept a small business going. Now, from this time up to about a year ago, I drifted from one job to another. I peddled brushes, did odd jobs such as painting, and finally got established with a well-known piano company as an assistant service manager. Then came the big crash of 1929, and this particular company abolished their radio department. For two years I worked for one of my old competitors who owned a radio store. He put up with my drinking until I was in such a physical breakdown that I had to quit. All this time my troubles at home were getting worse. My whole family blamed my failure on the alcoholic question, and so the usual arguments would start the instant I came in the house. This naturally made me go out and drink some more. If I had no money, I would borrow, beg, or even steal enough for a bottle. My wife fortunately went to business, which was our only salvation. Our little boy was six years old at the time, and due to the fact we needed someone to care for him during the day, we moved in with my family. Now the trouble did start, because I not only had my wife to face every evening, but three of the elders of the family. My wife did everything for me she possibly could. First she got in touch with a well-known psychiatrist, and I went faithfully to him for a few months. This particular doctor was such a nervous individual. I thought he had the St. Vitus dance, and I really thought he needed some kind of treatment more than I did. He advised hospitalization from three months to a year. Well, this was all out of order as far as I was concerned. In the first place, I had an idea that my wife wanted to put me away in a state institution where maybe I would be stuck for the rest of my life. In the second place, I wanted to go, if anywhere, to a private institution, and that was far beyond our financial means. In the third place, I knew that that would be no cure because I reasoned that it would be like taking candy out of a young child's reach. The instant I would come out a free man, I would go right back to old Alki again. In this one thing I found out later, I was perfectly right. What I thought and wanted at the time was not to want to want to take a drink. This phrase is a very important link in my story. I knew this could only be done by myself, but how could I accomplish it? well, this was the main question. The point was always that when I did drink, I wanted all the time not to, and that alone wasn't enough. At the time I felt like a drink, I did not want to take it at all, but I had to, it seemed. So if you can grasp what I mean, I wished I would not want that drink. Am I nuts, or do you get me? To get back to the doctor, If anything, these visits made me worse. And worst of all, everyone told me I wanted to drink. And that was all there was to that. After going to as many as six or eight other doctors, some of my own friends advised my wife to make her plans for the future as I was a hopeless case, had no backbone, no willpower, and would end up in the gutter. Well, here I was, a man with much ability, a violinist, a radio engineer, a ballet master, and at this point took up hairdressing, so that added one more to the list. Can you beat it? I knew there must be some way out of all this mess. Everyone told me to stop my drinking, but none could tell me how. Until I met a friend, and believe me, he turned out to be a true friend, something I never had until this past year. One morning, after one of my escapades, my wife informed me I was to go with her to a public hospital, or she would pack up and leave with our boy. My father, being a physician for 40 years, put me in a private New York hospital. I was there 10 days and was put in physical shape, and above everything else, put on the right path to recovery and happiness. My friend first asked me if I really wanted to stop drinking, and if I did, would I do anything, no matter what it was, in order to? I knew there was only one thing left to do if I wished to live and not enter an insane asylum where I knew I would eventually wind up. Making up my mind that I would, he said, fine, and went on to explain the simple steps to take. After spending an hour or two with me that day, he returned two days later and went into the subject more thoroughly. He explained he had been in the same hospital with the same malady, and after taking these steps after his discharge, had not taken a drink in three years. And also there were about 60 others that had this same experience. All these fellows got together on Sunday evenings and brought their wives, and everybody spent a very pleasant time together. Well, after I met all these people, I was more than surprised to find a very interesting, sociable, and friendly crowd. They seemed to take more interest in me than all of my old fraternity brothers or Broadway pals had ever done. There were no dues or expenses whatsoever. I went along for about fourteen weeks, partly keeping these ideas— And so one afternoon, I thought it would do no harm to take a couple of drinks and no more, saying to myself, I have this thing in hand now. I can be a moderate drinker. Here, I made a fatal mistake. After all my past experience, again I thought I could handle the situation, only to find out one week later it was the same old thing. I repeated the same thing over again and another week again. Finally, I was back at the hospital, although I went under protest. My wife had expected to take two weeks' vacation in the country with me, but instead had to use this money for the hospital expenses. During my one-week stay, I held this as a grudge against her. The result was I got drunk three days after I was discharged from the hospital, and she left me for two weeks. During this period of time, I drank heavily, being upset not only over her absence, but perfectly at sea as to how I could ever get back on my feet and make a new start again. There was no mistake about it. There was something that I failed to do in those simple steps. So I carefully went over each day as best I could since my first drink after 14 weeks of sobriety and found I had slipped away from quite a few of some of the most important things which I should do in order to keep sober. Certainly, I was down now, ashamed to face my new friends, my own family giving me up as lost, and everyone saying, the system didn't work, did it? This last remark was more than too much for me. Why should this fellowship of hard-working fellows be jeopardized by me? It worked for them, As a matter of fact, not one who has kept faithfully to it has ever slipped. One morning, after a sleepless night worrying over what I could do to straighten myself out, I went to my room alone, took my Bible in hand, and asked him, the one power, that I might open to a good place to read, and I read, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see a different law in my members.' Warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity under the law of sin, which is in my members, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me out of the body of this death? That was enough for me. I started to understand. Here were the words of Paul, a great teacher. When then, if I had slipped, now I could understand.' From that day, I gave, and still give, and always will, time every day to read the Word of God and let Him do all the caring. Who am I to try and run myself, or anyone else? This concludes the reading of Smile With Me, At Me, from the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm grateful you listened. Stay tuned for the next episode featuring a suite of three short stories from the original Big Book entitled, A Close Shave, Educated Agnostic, and Another Prodigal Story. If you're new to this podcast, please note that all 11 chapters in the main section of the Big Book are in earlier episodes that you can listen to anytime. Download and subscribe for free to the Big Book Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen at our website, bigbookpodcast.com, where you will also find transcriptions of chapters in the main section of the Big Book. And if you enjoyed listening, I'd be super grateful if you can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. And please, share this podcast with your friends and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the Big Book they ever hear.